But it's wonderful to have the sunshine and uh, good to be with you, with God's people on such a bright, cheerful morning. Outside, it's good to be with you on any morning, whatever the condition is outside, but thankful for the thankful for the sunshine. Jeremy, real quick, I just want to lift the book and, and let you see it. Jeremy mentioned that next week we will begin our equipping hour on the gospel, understanding the gospel, and walking through what is the gospel. We talk a lot about the gospel. We talk a lot about proclaiming the gospel, explaining the gospel, teaching the gospel, evangelizing. But the gospel, I, I find as I meet with people and interview people and, and to say, okay, tell me what the gospel, can you share the gospel with me? And I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor and they think I'm going to like give them an F or something on their report, but people just stumble and, and they're not very clear a lot of times when, when you ask them what the gospel is. And so if we're going to evangelize, we need to know what the truth is. And this uh, little little booklet will help us walk through the gospel over about seven weeks. And uh, so please make sure that you get one of these books before you leave so that we can start on this next week during our equipping hour. That equipping hour, again, takes place right after the morning uh, service. This morning we are in Acts chapter 17. Would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Acts chapter 17. We're going to read verse 1 through 15. Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 
And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, <clears throat> this morning I, I hope and pray, my prayer for you this morning is that you will be encouraged as a child of God, as someone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you would be profoundly encouraged this morning by the truth of the character and the attributes of God's Word. What is God's Word? This Word that you hold in your lap. What is this Word? We're looking today at the character of this Word, the truth of what this Word is. And I hope that that's very encouraging for you this morning. If you are not a child of God, or if you are not trusting in Jesus as Savior, I'm just going to warn you today that the message is not going to be encouraging for you. In fact, it might even be infuriating for you. It might actually tick you off. It will frustrate you. You're not going to be happy with what is talked about this morning. In fact, you're going to find every reason to oppose it and to hate it to speak evil of it. And, and by the way, if you find that as your response this morning, maybe, maybe you're a teenager today. Maybe you're a preteen. Maybe you're a college-age person. Or maybe you're a person in your 30s and 50s, whatever it is. If your response today is one of anger, frustration at God's word, at its simplicity, at its clarity, at its... Authority. If your response is anger, whatever age you're at, I want you to understand that that puts you in the in the norm. Most people hate God's word. Most people reject its authority. You're not unique. You may be unique in the particular situation you find yourself today because you're surrounded by people that are God's people. We love God's word. We love the King. Uh, that God's word points to. And, and if you don't, you're going to be in the minority maybe in this room. But overall, you are very much the norm. We sit here today as God's people, as a unique set of people in the world and in the day and age which we live. We are not the norm. God's word is not received by most We join Paul and Silas today here in Acts 17. We rejoin them as they are on their second missionary journey, or what's known as their second missionary journey. Last week we saw events that led them to this second journey as they formed a new team with Paul and Silas and come to a new mission field of Greece the mission field of Europe, to a city called Philippi. Last week, we saw them go to Philippi, where a new church is started with some unlikely people, people who God moves in and works in, in the powerful circumstances to, to cause them to believe the truth of who Jesus is. Now, this second missionary journey, as we saw last week, takes place on the heels of a massive decision. Acts 15 Remember, Acts 15 is that council 
uh, by the church, the apostles and the elders of the church of Jerusalem, where it is decided that God's people are no longer defined by Jewishness. God's people are no longer defined by Jewishness. They're no longer defined by the law. And that, that reality, and if, if, you don't, if you don't get this, I want you to get this, that reality that God's people are not defined by Jewishness or by the law, that is incomprehensible. It's, un, it's incredible. It's unbelievable. We, we simply don't understand how, how hard that would have been for people to understand, Jewish people to understand in that day. If you read the Old Testament correctly, right, the expectation of the Old Testament is for God's chosen Messiah, his anointed one, to come and to free the people of Israel from exile. To free them from the oppression of the nations that oppose them. The anointed one or the Messiah of God would bring in the kingdom of God and gather Israel to enjoy his victory and worship God forever under the reign of a Davidic king. All nations then would be brought in to pay homage to this Jewish king they would come and they would kiss the son, worship the son king of God over Israel. That was the Old Testament expectation. It was a Jewish promise for a Jewish Messiah, anointed one of God, to come from God and rightfully demand the worship of all the nations with Israel surrounding his throne. It's a Jewish-centric expectation. Which, again, and I, I, I'm trying to briefly give you the background there to, to cause you to see how incredible Acts 15 is. Because in Acts 15, it's decided that no longer is this a promise for the Jewish people no longer are God's people defined by Jewishness or by the law, but now God's people. The, the, book of, the book of Acts blows these expectations to pieces. It's unexpected. It, it, it couldn't have been expected, right? God's people are now defined. The ones who are receiving the kingdom, the ones who are receiving this king, they are now defined not by Jewishness or by the law, but by faith in Christ. They are defined by faith. The people of God are not the Jewish people, but the people who are born anew, people born of the Spirit people that have been regenerated or given life. These are those who have been converted through repentance and faith. They have seen the truth of who Jesus is. They have turned from their sin and they have placed their faith in this Jesus who is proclaimed, this Jewish Messiah who has come. He is not just the king 
of the Jews. He is not just the anointed one of God for the Jews, but he is for both Jew and Gentile. He is for all. And they are now one new humanity. This is what Ephesians 2 says. There's one new humanity. Jew and Gentile has made one new man. Those who are in Christ are defined as this new humanity, the people of God. And all of us sit here this morning as recipients of of this good news. So here are Paul and Silas traveling through Greece, proclaiming the message of God's kingdom come, God's kingdom being established in the name and work of his son, King Jesus. Jesus, who has died for his people. Do you know many kings that would die for their people? Jesus has. He has died for the sins of his people, not because he was a sinner, but because he sought to redeem sinful man. He died for sinners to make them his people. Jesus died for the sins of his people and rose again to defeat the death and darkness to deliver his people from exile once and for all. This is what Jesus has accomplished. And he is now ascended to the right hand of God where he sits as the king, the rightful king of all. He sits at the right hand of God as the head, as the ruler over his people. And one day he will return and be acknowledged by every soul as the king that he already is. This is the message that Paul and Silas are proclaiming. And this message requires a call of response. They go preaching this message in every city, every place they go, they want to find a place to preach this message. The message of God's kingdom come, established, mediated in his son king, in the work of his son, the death and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is the message they proclaimed in every place they go. And they call people to repent and turn from their sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they're preaching. And today, we see them preach this message in two cities. Thessalonica and Berea. And, and these cities, this is, this is what's happening here. These cities serve as a contrast to one another. One city responds to the message negatively, and the other city responds to the message positively. Or at least the Jewish people in each one of those cities responds differently, respond differently. So here are Paul and Silas preaching in Thessalonica. Let's walk back through the story, make sure you caught all the details there as we read through it. In both places... Paul goes to a particular place. Where did Paul go when he goes into Thessalonica? He goes into the synagogue. The synagogue. This is where he chooses to go to proclaim this message. Why does he do that? Why does he go to the synagogue? Because the synagogue is the place where the Jewish scriptures are read every Sabbath. 
This is where the Old Testament is read and taught. In each synagogue, there would have been somebody there who would have run and organized the service. There would have been somebody there kind of vetting teachers that would come through and want to teach. Paul comes through and he goes to the synagogue. It's there where the Old Testament scriptures are taught every week. It's there that he sees a prime opportunity to preach the gospel message. And he would have been one who would have, he would have been quickly received as a legitimate teacher. Remember how he was taught. His credentials were peerless. He was a student of Gamaliel, a pupil of one of the prized teachers of the day. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So when Paul rolls in to a town and rolls up into the synagogue and says, hey, I'd, I'd like to, to open up the scriptures this week and explain the scriptures. By the way, that's, that's where we get our form of, of service from, is kind of that model where the scriptures are opened up and explained. That's why we do this every week. This is what God's people have done throughout history. So Paul goes into the synagogue, he rolls up into the synagogue and he shows his credentials and the guy goes, the platform is yours. It's an opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel. And this was his custom. In every town he came in, he would go to the synagogue first where he would open up the scriptures and explain. That's what you see him doing. In Thessalonica, for three Sabbath days, for three weeks, he speaks in this synagogue at Thessalonica. But notice the description given to his teaching. Notice what it says about his teaching. He reasons with them from the scriptures. He reasons with them. This wasn't a dialogue or a conversation he was having, this wasn't a debate. He is giving argument. He is presenting argument for people to hear. He's reasoning with them. Explaining to them. Proving to them. And what is he explaining? What is he proving? Look at it there. Verse number three, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, two things, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So he's explaining and giving evidence. He's making an argument and he's giving evidence and he's explaining. He says that the scriptures, Jewish people, the scriptures that you hold in your hand The Old Testament scriptures actually expect the Messiah to come and die and be buried and then rise again. That is what you should have expected if you were reading the Old Testament scriptures correctly. So so in, in a way, he's actually calling out their wrong interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. So there's an implication here. Did you know there's a right interpretation of the scriptures? There's actually a right interpretation. I don't know if you've ever been in a Bible study where you sit around in a circle and everybody goes, well, what this means to me is, well, what, did I, what I got out of this was, 
you know, I appreciate all, all that you're saying, but, uh, but to me this means that's not helpful Bible study. Because ultimately what you think the Bible means and what, let, let me just be frank with you, what I think the Bible means really doesn't matter. The Bible has a right interpretation. And we should seek that right interpretation. It's, it's not just a, it's not a free-for-all. Where we come to the Bible and just say, well, I think it means this, and you think it means that, and they think it means this, and isn't it great we can all just get along? No, there's, there's a right interpretation of the Bible. And it's findable. The right interpretation is actually accessible. This is what's encouraging. There's a right interpretation. And you know what? You don't have to have a degree in theology to be able to read the Bible correctly. And that's super encouraging. How often I sit with people who think that they can't read the Bible because they don't have some degree or some education. No, the Bible is clear. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. The Bible is clear and it's understandable and there's a right interpretation and you should seek it. Paul explains and proves to these people that the Old Testament actually expects their Messiah to come to die and to rise again. And then he says, not only that, not only is that the right interpretation of your Old Testament scriptures, but this Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. He proclaims to them the one who has come to fulfill the Old Testament expectation. His name is Jesus. Jesus has come and died for his people and been raised again from the dead. And this, this Jesus is the one who rightly deserves their worship and their obedience. He's their king and they need to respond. And that's what you see next. You, you see a response. Notice the description of their response there. And, and, and this is not accidental. Look what it says in verse 4. And some of them, that is the Jews, some of the Jews there were persuaded. Persuaded. Some of them were persuaded by the argument that Paul was making. Some of them were. And they joined with Paul and Silas. They, they joined with this message as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So you have these two different audiences here in the synagogue. You have the Jewish audience and you have the Greek audience. A few, some of the Jews responded positively and joined with Paul and Silas. They were persuaded by the argument. Many of the Greeks were persuaded. But then there's another response. Do you see it there? The majority of the Jews responded differently. Look at it. This is such a staggering response. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Set the city in an uproar. And attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
the majority of the Jewish audience there becomes jealous. And in their jealousy, they go out and they find and gather some wicked men from the marketplace. Every marketplace throughout history has always had these people there. Okay. People just hanging out, up to no good. Right? And we, we see this all the time. You see it on the news. People just hanging out doing, and, and something, some riot or something's happening. Hey, let's go join that riot. Right? And there's pro- these are probably young men. I'm just saying. Young men, they're hot and bothered about who knows what. Angsty, ready to get in a fight, ready to burn a car, ready to, you know, over, you know, throw rocks through windows or something. They're excited and excitable. Well, these Jews, they become jealous and they go and find these riffraff. They go and find these guys who are up to no good. They're just looking for trouble, ready for a fight, and they gather them together. These men have, these, these, these rabble, they have no personal interest. They're just wanting to, you know, hurt somebody or break something. And they go out and find these wicked men. And they, this is, this is what the text is saying. They join with these wicked men. Now, the Jews that believed, the Jews that received, who did they join with? They joined with Paul and Silas. But these that rejected, they were jealous and they joined with wicked men. Seeking to oppose the truth. They joined with wicked men and they formed a mob. Out of control. They go and they attack the house of Jason. Now the house of Jason is where it's assumed that Paul and Silas were staying. And where the church in Thessalonica probably had been formed in their base of operation there in Thessalonica. Jason... Is probably a marked man for this. We know where he's staying. He's staying at the house of Jason. Let's go get him. They don't find Paul and Silas there. So they drag Jason out. And they drag other brothers out. And they drag them before the city officials. And, And look at what they say. No, no. Correction. They don't say this. They shout this. They shout this. Man, they're angry. Look at what they shout. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Do you see the irony in this? Do you see the irony in what they're doing and saying? We are so angry at these men who are causing all this trouble that we're going to cause all this trouble and set the city in an uproar. They, they accuse Paul and Silas of being the troublemakers and completely ignore the fact that they're out of control. They're a mob. Thirsty for blood. That's what they are. But they point the finger and say, these men who are turning the world upside down. Literally what they're saying is, these men who have rejected authority, they're they're accusing Paul and Silas of rejecting authority and causing a rebellion. Again, the irony is thick. For it it is them... They are the ones who are in rebellion against the king of heaven. They are the ones who are rebelling. But in their rebellion against ultimate authority, they are blinded. And they point the finger at Paul and Silas as if they're the ones causing rebellion. And that's what they accuse. They say, 
They've come here, these people that are upsetting everything. (laughs) So ironic. These people that are upsetting everything, they've come here and Jason's received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Here are Jewish people. Here are Jewish people saying, look at these men, they are causing rebellion against Caesar. And all the decrees behaving against his decrees saying that there is another king. Jesus. Now we could sit on that and probably make a a, a big point and it's a great preaching opportunity for sure. They They are pointing to this reality that Paul is preaching about the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish anointed one, the king sent by God to establish a kingdom. They are using that as leverage to accuse Paul and Silas of actually opposing Caesar. And in one sense, right, in one sense, they're right. There is another king. Caesar is not the ultimate king. As Psalm 2 tells us, all the kings of the earth, all the kings of the earth, all the Caesars, all the presidents, All of the kings and queens and royalty, all of the prime ministers, all of the kings of the nations are called and commanded to kiss the sun, to give worship to the true king of all things. So in that, they're right. But they've missed that message. All they want to do is stir up trouble and get Paul and Silas in trouble and get them kicked out of their city. Or worse, there is another king, Jesus. And at that news, the people, look at verse 8, the people in the city authorities were disturbed. That means they were thrown into turmoil. They were thrown into turmoil at, at the things that they heard. And when they had taken money, they take bail from Jason and the other brothers. They let them go on bail. The church then quickly sends away Paul and Silas. They go and find Paul and Silas and say, you got to leave. By night, they send them away approximately 45 miles to the town of Berea. Now notice what happens in Berea. Did you see it there? Where does Paul go when he gets to Berea? He goes back to the synagogue. He goes into Berea, as is his custom, he goes to the synagogue. And what does he do there? He does the same thing there in Berea that he did in Thessalonica. He explains the scriptures and shows and evidences that they point to Jesus as the Messiah. That's what he does. He reasons from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus has come. He has suffered and died as the Old Testament expects. And he has risen again to be proclaimed as king, the one who is bringing God's kingdom and, and if you're reading this, you go, why, why would he do that? Doesn't he know what the synagogue's going to do? Here we go again. Paul doesn't know how to win friends and influence people very well. Doesn't he realize that his method is not very effective? It's not really working. But look at what happens in Berea. 
First, the text there describes the Bereans, the Berean Jews, uniquely. Look at it in contrast with the Thessalonican Jews. Look at what it says. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. You see, and this is the point, it isn't Paul's method that's broken. It's not Paul's method that caused the problem in Thessalonica. Now, now listen, there is a wrong method to giving the gospel, okay? We're not trying to be jerks. We want to strive for gentleness and grace, truth in love. Did you know truth without love distorts the truth? It, it ceases to be truth if it's done without love. So, so we have to speak the truth in love, grace, gentleness, be winsome. Is that, is that a goal of yours, to be winsome? Sometimes people are so, like, I just want to give the truth. They forget the grace and mercy that they've been shown. And they, they, they lack compassion and mercy and grace. But you see, Paul's method of explaining the scriptures, that's not the problem. The problem is in the hearts of those who hear. And the Bereans are better born than those in Thessalonica. That's what it actually says. They're more noble. They are, they are better born than those in Thessalonica. And see what they do? They, they have already a disposition that sees God's word as authoritative. The, these Jews have a belief that God's word, the Old Testament scriptures, are authoritative for their life. And so someone comes explaining the scriptures and reasoning with them out of the scriptures and giving evidence out of the scriptures. They're going to take that seriously. They receive the word that Paul gives with all eagerness and they examine the scriptures daily, every day, to see that it, it, what Paul is saying is true. What was the result of that disposition? What was the result of them hearing with all eagerness, receiving the word with all eagerness, and examining to see if this was true? Look at, look at what it says, and this is in direct contrast. Verse 12. Many of them therefore believed. How many people at Thessalonica? How many Jews? Few, some. But here in Berea, many of them believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So many Jews and many Greeks believe the message here that Paul proclaims at Berea. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness, examining to see whether or not what Paul is saying is true. But, however, the opposition is so committed. The opposition in Thessalonica, remember, 45 miles away in Thessalonica. They get word, they hear, that Paul and Silas have gone to Berea, and they are proclaiming the word of God in Berea also. And they are so full of anger. They are so full of hatred. That they take their mob, and they travel, 40, they travel two days to go and oppose Paul and Silas there in Berea. When they show up and start making trouble there, the believers at Berea send Paul off to Athens. As we've seen over and over again, God uses these situations to 
continue the spread of his gospel. The gospel continues going forward. Berea is not where it's going to stop, right? Berea is not the end line. So Paul is sent off to Athens. And we will see next week how Paul actually preaches the message there in Athens. And he uses a different method, but it's the same message. He proclaims in Athens... The gospel continues to go forward. Opposition will not stifle it. It will not choke it. It will continue on. The gospel, as I was thinking yesterday, I didn't just do my gutters yesterday. I, I uh, also worked on dandelions. Did you know the gospel's like dandelions? You try to stamp them out and they just keep popping up everywhere else. You can stamp them out over here and they just sprout up somewhere else. The message of the gospel cannot be contained. There's not a prison anywhere that can actually hold the gospel at bay. The gospel will keep on going. And it will go into hearts that are stone hard. And it will regenerate hearts that are opposed and bring new life. That's what the gospel does. The gospel will not be contained, and next week we'll see that in Athens. You might as well capitulate. If you're opposing the gospel, you might as well just give in. You might as well just admit that you're beaten. You might as well just admit that you've had enough and give in. There, Paul is sent off to Athens where he will continue to preach the gospel. But I want, I want to take a few minutes and I, I want to consider the truth here of what we see about God's word. What do we see about God's word here in Acts chapter 17? Well, simply, I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. God's word, God's word rightly explained God's word, rightly explained, is all we need. God's word, rightly explained, is all that mankind needs. It's all you need. It's all I need. It's all we here today need. And it is all that our world needs and it is all that we have to offer. Do you, do you believe that the only thing we have to offer is the right explanation, the right interpretation, as it were, of God's word? That's all we have. And that's all that's needed. God's word do you know the four characteristics, the four attributes? If I asked you about the attributes of God, you might list me out a bunch of different attributes. Do you know the four attributes of Scripture? The four attributes of Scripture, I'll return and give definition to these in a moment, but let me just give them to you here. The four attributes of Scripture. Number one, God's Word is authoritative. God's Word is final. What God has said is final. God's word is authoritative. God's word, secondly, is 
clear. God's word is clear. I always joke with my students, this is called perspicuity. The perspicuity of scripture. Don't write that down. You will never need that word ever. But the perspicuity, of scripture, it just always makes me, it's ironic because it's a very unclear word, perspicuity, and it means clarity. The word of God is clear. God's word, number three, is necessary. God's, so God's word is authoritative. God's word is clear. God's word is necessary. And number four, God's word is enough. Those are the four attributes of the scriptures that you hold in your hands. And four attributes that we need to recommit ourselves to. These should encourage us. Again, if you are a skeptic today, if you're a skeptic this morning, these aren't going to encourage you. They'll just infuriate you. You'll find every reason under the sun to uh, oppose these four realities, but it doesn't just your, your opposition doesn't make them any more untrue. Okay. They're, they're, they're true. And we hold on to them as God's people. God's word is authoritative. It's clear. It's necessary. And it is enough. Real quickly here. Here are the the points of the sermon, in fact. Number one, God's word, God's word which is authoritative and clear and necessary and enough, God's word rightly explained always points to Jesus. God's word rightly explained points to Jesus. Paul doesn't come into Thessalonica or Berea. He doesn't have his he doesn't have his jump drive or his hard drive full of all his sermons. He doesn't have a list of all these sermons that he's going to choose from and go into Thessalonica and think, well, you know, this sermon really worked in the last place I was in, so maybe I'll use that sermon. That's what people will like to hear. No, Paul only has one sermon. Paul only has one sermon. Now he may use different ways to get to that sermon but Paul only has one sermon and his sermon is this Jesus is both Lord and Christ he is the expectation of the Old Testament you should turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ his death and his resurrection Jesus is the king and he will reign as king. That's his message. He didn't have another message. He didn't have another sermon. There are no, no ten ways to be a wise financial planner. No, no six ways to make your home a happy home. No, no, three ways to get your husband to like you. He's got one message, and it's that Jesus is Lord in Christ. That's it. And if you say, well, that's, is that it? That's everything. I don't know that we actually believe that. I, I think we... We believe it's important, for sure. All of us would say that Jesus, as both Lord and Christ, the truths of repentance and faith in Christ, 
the truths of union with Christ. We would all say those are important, but there's surely other things we need to be worried about, right? No, Paul didn't have any other message, and we shouldn't either. We don't have any other message. The Word of God clearly explained is clear in all that it says about salvation in and through Jesus. And it's not meant to be used to do anything other than point to Jesus. Can I ask you, do you, do you separate Scripture from the actual point of Scripture? Do you separate Scripture from the actual point of Scripture? When you give advice... Is it good advice, but not gospel advice? Is it good advice that really has little or nothing to do with Jesus? Ladies, when you have the young mom come to you asking advice about potty training, or about how to cook meals for her husband, or how to, how to discipline, do you start and, and continue and end with the truth of who Jesus is? Or do you just give advice that really anybody could give? The the truth of the kingdom come in the name of God's son, King Jesus. This changes everything about how we approach our life. That makes potty training and meal planning and makes discipline all kingdom work. And if if it's not kingdom work for us, and if we're not looking to the truths of the gospel in it, then we're missing the point. Financial advice. Oh, sure, the Bible has a lot to say about finances. But but if if you're not bringing everything through the filter of, of Jesus, the truth of his kingdom... Do you know that's the that's the, the, the financial advice the gospels give? Your father's bringing a kingdom in Jesus. This should change how you hold on to your finances. Should change how you use them. Should change how you think about them. The gospel, the truth of Jesus, changes everything about how we approach life. I, I am I am Amazed, even at my own, <laughs> even at my own tendency to give advice to people without mentioning Jesus. He's all we have. He's all we have. And he's changed everything about my heart and about my mind and about what I want and about what I'm going for, about my aims and my goals. See, that's what we need to be asking. When the person comes to you for financial advice, just ask why. Why is this important to you? Why is this a concern for you? Why is this a worry for you? What, what is it that you're trying to accomplish with this? Is this glorifying Jesus? Is this making much of Jesus? Is this about finding our treasure in Jesus? We talk about it every week when we give, right? The offering. We, we, we are not trying to get money out of people so that we can just go on surviving. The day, the day where I stand up here and try to beg for money so we can keep the lights on at Trinity Church is the day I hope we stop being a church. I don't want to be a church if that's what we're going to do. 
Listen, your giving is about your heart and treasure being found in Jesus. That's what your giving's about. That's what it should be about. It should change everything. Man, we could go on and on and on and make so many different applications of this. But the word, the word of God, rightly explained, points to Jesus and his sufficiency. It's not meant to be used apart from Jesus. It's not a morality book trying to get you to live a certain way. It's not a self-help book. It's not meant to to give you a successful career or a prosperous life. No, it's about Jesus and you being changed into the image of Christ. The Old Testament is the expectation of the anointed one of God coming to establish God's kingdom. That's what the Old Testament points to. That's what the Old Testament's all about. In the Gospels, we see Jesus come and, and this Old Testament explanation has been fulfilled in the New Testament and the epistles, what do we see? We see the apostles explaining that Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament expectation and how that should impact our lives. The death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus should impact every single part of our lives. And that's what the, that's what the epistles point out over and over and over and over and over again. It's all about Jesus. I don't know what God's doing. Yes, you do. Yes, we do know what God's doing. What is he doing? He is making much of his son. He's exalting Jesus. And he's taking us who are his people and he's changing us into the likeness of Christ. That's what he's doing. He's ripping away all the things, all the false idols and all the false treasures that we have. And he's making us into the image of his son. That is what he's doing. And if you think he's supposed to be doing something else, then you need to be realigned in your thinking. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus has come to do gather a people around himself to bring honor and glory to his name in the midst of his people. And that's what he wants from us. The book of Revelation then pictures that final victory and restoration of that kingdom in the name of Jesus to the glory of God. So the word rightly explained points to Jesus. I've heard heard people say about the gospel, about the truth of Jesus, I've heard people say things, well, yeah, I I got saved. I mean, yeah, I know the gospel. I know the gospel. But that's not what I need right now. What else is there? Have you separated the Bible from its actual point? When you give advice, what is the advice you give? And what is the point and aim of the advice you give? God's word rightly explained points to Jesus. God's word rightly explained, number two, engages the mind. God's word rightly explained engages the mind. Do you see the language that's used all the way throughout? Paul reasons with them, explaining, proving. They were persuaded. They, they examine the, the explanation or the preaching, the teaching of God's word, rightly done, engages the mind. It involves reasoned argument. The word of God, rightly explained, involves reasoned argument. It does not first engage, this is important, it does not first engage the will 
or the emotions. Now, the will and the emotions are very important. But the will and the emotions are meant to follow the mind. And we have gotten that backwards so often, right? God's word, rightly explained, involves and engages the mind. It is, it is an argument. It is arguments or arguments, reasoned arguments put forward to be considered. Preaching or teaching or music or writing that just engages the will. Have you ever, have you ever engaged or have you ever uh, encountered preaching that just engages the will? Oh, I have. Do you, do you know what that is? All the will or all, all the preaching and teaching and writing and all that that engages the will, seeks to engage the will, just tells you what to do. Do this. Be that way. Think this. Engages the will without actually engaging the mind. And I think sometimes this is what people crave after. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. When, in fact, engaging the mind is a lot more work, isn't it? Engaging the mind takes some thought. It takes some time. The right explanation of God's word engages the mind. Not first the will. Also, it does not first engage the emotions. And I think this is probably more often where we are. We really enjoy teaching or preaching or music or writing that will engage our emotions without thinking. We are concerned about how it makes me feel. Well, it made me feel good, so it must have been right. I really liked that, so that was good. Oh, I didn't like that. That was bad. Isn't that the way we are? The word rightly explained should engage the mind, not first the will or the emotions. And this is where we again see the clarity of Scripture. The Scriptures rightly interpreted, rightly explained, are clear and accessible to even the simplest of minds. That's not to say that everything in Scripture is easy to understand. No. Peter even says, some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Doesn't he say that? Some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. But, God is not seeking to hide himself from you. He has written his book. And and it's as simple as it. If, If God wanted to hide himself from you, he wouldn't have revealed himself in a book. Get that. If God wanted to hide himself from you, he wouldn't have revealed himself in a book for you to read in human language. Amazing, the condescension of God to to speak to us in our own language or in human language. If God wanted to hide himself from you, he wouldn't have spoken to you in a book. But how often we leave the book to, to trust in experiences or feelings or emotions. We leave the book that he's revealed himself in to live in our emotions. Here's the encouraging part. God is accessible. He is knowable. You can see what he wants you to see in his word. He has made plain everything that one needs to know for salvation, for life, and for godliness. Listen to the Westminster Confession. Maybe you haven't read the Westminster Confession lately. Listen to the Westminster Confession talking about this point. 
Listen to this. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So not all things in Scripture are the same level of plainness in themselves, nor are they plain to everyone on the same level. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in the due use of the ordinary means. What are the ordinary means? The due use of ordinary means. I tell my students this all the time. It's a book. That means you have to read it. Reading according to the way it's structured and written. It's that simple. Sometimes the Bible doesn't mean something to you because you're, you're like reading it, but then you're closing your eyes thinking, well, I don't know what this means. I hope that it just kind of occurs to me. No, read it. Reason through it. Think about it. Read. It says here in the Westminster Confession, not only the learned, but the unlearned in the due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. This is what we believe about Scripture. You say, well, I don't know how to read. How about the person that doesn't know how to read? I'm so thankful for people that do. You can sit and read it to them. Because it is clear, because it involves the mind, Scripture must be examined carefully. Scripture must be examined carefully. Are you a discerning person? All of us like to think of ourselves as, as discerning people, don't we? We're all discerning. You're not going to fool me, right? I'm not going to be anybody's fool. Are you a discerning person? Do you examine carefully all that you hear? I love this, I love this uh, illustration given by Kevin DeYoung. He talks about three kinds of approaches. He says, number one, there are people who approach the hearing of God's word as a hammer. Are you a hammer when you hear God's word? Critical, arrogant, dismissive? Anything that's put before you, just smash it to pieces. Woke everybody up there. Whenever, whenever God's word is just put before you, you smash it. You're critical. Dismissive. Or are you a sponge? No, it could be good to be a sponge, but it could also be really bad to be a sponge. Right? Man, I, I run into this all the time, and this is true of my own heart if I'm not careful. Right? Every, everything that people put out there that has God's name on it or the Bible on it, you just kind of soak in. You just kind of soak it in like a sponge. Just believing everything that's said. No. As God's people, we should examine carefully what God's word says and what we hear. We shouldn't be the critical hammer that smashes to pieces everything. We shouldn't be the sponge that just soaks in everything without discernment, but we should be like a microscope. We should be like a microscope taking what we have heard and closely examining what we hear, discerning the argument in what we hear, and applying the truth with its implications to our lives. That's what the Bereans were. They were microscopes. 
and they believed, they had, the, uh, they had a, a desire to know God's word. Last, last couple points here. God's word rightly explained will point to Jesus. God's word rightly explained will engage the mind. God's word rightly explained will receive passionate, aggressive opposition. To see, did you see the description of how the people oppose God's word there? They form a mob and attack. And this is often the case. Did, did you know that opposition to God's word, rightly explained, does not happen most often in reasoned argument? I have, I have yet to find anybody who actually wants to sit down and reason from the scriptures why what I'm saying is not true. People just want to hate. They just want to throw rocks. They just want to get angry. The opposition of the word is not found in reasoned argument, but emotional, personal bias. That can't be true because I don't want it to be true. That can't be true because that's not the way I want to live my life. You people that hold up the Bible are just unloving, bigots, hateful, so a lot of labels get thrown around, don't they? A lot of labels, a lot of angry attacks. This is why, and I, I said a minute ago, it's not about our method. Our method, sometimes people think, well, if I just explain it more clearly, or maybe if I'm more winsome, or maybe if I'm more approachable, or maybe if we have, maybe if people come in here and feel really comfortable with everything that we do, maybe then they will receive the good news. No, no, that's, that's, that's a distortion of the truth. We're appealing to their flesh. God's word will be, God's word rightly explained, will be opposed passionately, aggressively. But this is what we all do. No one wants to hear God's word. No one wants to hear what God has said because he's the authority. We don't like an authority over our lives. We question authority. We refuse authority. We don't want authority over our lives. This is why James tells us in chapter 1, 19 through 21. Remember what he says? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Your thought, why does, it, why does it have a reference to anger there? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Because that's going to be your first response to God's word. Anger does not work the righteousness of God, he goes on to say. Therefore, he says... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted or implanted word which is able to save your souls. I talked about advice a minute ago. We give advice. You know why we don't talk about Jesus a lot of times in our advice and connected to the gospel in our advice? Because we know how that's going to be received. When we're giving advice, the, the, the list of six things you need to do to be a better homemaker, people love those lists. I love those lists. Just tell me what I should do. Tell me how to feel. Don't tell me what to think. Don't point to Jesus. I don't want, I don't want, I don't need this right now. I just need some encouragement. Now, see, we need God's word rightly explained, which points to Jesus, which reshapes our thinking, which reshapes our, our desires, calls us out on what we're really putting our hope in. 
We all respond that way, naturally. But God's word rightly explained, and this is the last point, God's word rightly explained receives glad submission as authoritative by those who are born of God. God's word rightly explained is seen as authoritative for those who are born of God. Who is your authority? Who do you appeal to? Everybody appeals to an authority. Everybody, 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 everybody appeals to an authority. Who is your authority? There are lots of different things. I have a whole list here. I'm not going to get to it, but we have, we have all these things that we appeal to for authority. Most often we appeal to what we feel and what we want. That becomes our authority, not God's word. But those who are born of God will submit to God's word as authoritative. And that brings us again to these four attributes of God's word. And I'll give these to you as closing. God's word is authoritative. The word of God is the final authority. The word of God as it points to Jesus, right? That's the final authority. No other source of knowledge, not science, not human experience, no church councils or traditions should be held on the same level of authority as God's word or no other source of knowledge should be used to replace scriptural authority. We believe God's word is authoritative because we are his people. God's word is clear. The saving message of scripture is clear to all who have ears to hear the message and apply the ordinary means required for reading and comprehension. God, God has been so gracious. He has given us the revelation of himself and his son in his word that is ready to be accessed and seen and read and comprehended. It is clear. God's word is necessary. General revelation, that is, that which can be known about God through looking at all he has made or human reason. General revelation isn't enough to tell us who Christ is how to be joined to him, and how to live in light of Christ. No, God's word is necessary for all these things. So I just ask you again, are you appealing to God's word as you give advice and you speak the word to one another? Are you actually appealing to God's word or is it just your own wisdom separated from the Bible? Lastly, God's word is enough. The scripture contains everything we need to know for salvation, life, and godliness. Scripture has everything we need for salvation and life and godliness. He has answered every question we actually need to ask. Father, we thank you for your word, for its sufficiency, for its clarity, for its authority for its necessity. You have given us your word. We confess today how we count and rely upon so many other things. Make us, like the Bereans, make us examiners of your word, thinkers. Help us to see our own tendency to dismiss clear teaching. Help us see our own tendency to depend on 
the strength of man and man's wisdom. And give us encouragement as your people, as we trust in your word. It is everything we need. You have not hidden yourself from us. We, we hear that. We know that. As we encourage one another, I pray that you would give us this commitment to create in us this dependency that we would point to Jesus every opportunity we get, even in the advice we give, that it would be filtered through the gospel, asking questions that are heart-level questions that need to be asked. We thank you for what you're accomplishing and forming through your word, its power, sufficiency, and authority. We praise you in all of these things. Amen.